Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Literary Festival podcast. My name's Alex Clark, and I'm delighted to tell you that on the most recent episode of the podcast, I was joined by Robert Webb, comedian, actor and author, whose first novel, Come Again, is a what he describes as an adventure story that takes him into the deep, deep past. But before we started talking about that, I asked him what his strangest experience in lockdown had been. <laughs> I'm not sure if I've had enough self-revelation um, or maybe I I did all that a few years ago and now I'm just giving it all a rest <laughs> I, um, I we tried to friends of mine a friend of mine very kindly um, organized a, a quiz and there were like eight of us like four couples essentially if you can imagine anything so revolting and we tried to do a sort of quiz including a pitch around that he emailed to everyone it was only halfway through that that I realised that what they were trying to do was simulate the conditions of a pub. And essentially, it wasn't really about the quiz. It was about everybody <laughs> downing massive glasses of wine. And since I don't drink anymore, that wasn't as much fun as I, I was hoping. So the quiz the quiz element sort of took over for me. And then uh, I haven't been back to the quiz. I think they've done a couple of quizzes since, which <laughs> I've, uh, I've heard my excuses and had an early night or a bath or do you think you're slightly persona non grata for being competitive? Because I, I say this as a very competitive person in quiz situations. It sort of comes and goes. Whenever I feel I'm doing quite well, that's when I my subconscious sort of hijacks the situation and then I start doing badly. It's like the first time I tried 10 pin bowling, I found out I was actually quite, here was a sport I was actually, sport or game, I was actually quite good at. And then the moment, the second I took the lead, my whole game collapsed. I'm a sort of anti-competitive person really I don't I don't mean to be but um in those any kind of quiz or competition or game not my career that's different but (laughs) in games and quizzes and and sports ruthlessly competitive in your career absolutely (laughs) well we know this because actually your career is now becoming a massive land grab you've basically you've you've (laughs) got tv on the go there you are everybody's watching peep show to beat the band during lockdown because it is just so immensely competitive to see people who are probably slightly more awkward and miserable than we all are exactly Um, then you wrote a book you wrote how not to be a boy in 27 which was a kind of memoir manifesto and then you thought i know i'm going to write a novel and you only flipping have i mean a lot of people think they're going to write novels they don't you did um it's called come again tell us about it Come Again is the story of uh, Kate, who is our heroine, Kate Marston. She's about my age, a bit younger, about 45. Uh, sadly, she just lost her husband a few months ago. Uh, she and Luke were together for a long time. They met when they were freshers at the first term at university. But Luke died a few months ago and Kate's in trouble. She's not getting better. She's a danger to herself. She's really suffering uh, in terrible grief. One day she wakes up She's 18 years old. It's 1992. She's in her college room. This was the week. In fact, this was the day that she met Luke for the first time. What do you do? She knows how he died. She knows that he's already ill. She thinks she's there to save him or to warn him. So she's going to try and do everything exactly the same. Hence comedy, because you can't do everything exactly the same. So really, that was the sort of germ of the the idea of the book and from there it kind of expanded out into you know there are lots of larger than life characters and her job provides a sort of a a broader element to the book um uh, there are some 
various thrills and spills. And yeah, it's basically a grief-stricken, time-travelling rom-com adventure. What a genre book. You kind of thought, actually, I'm not going to do one genre. I'm going to, I'm just going to go for it. I saw a review in the Metro that uh, basically said it's as if Robert Webb started writing a rom-com and then decided to put in all his favourite bits from films as well. And I, I'm really not going to object to that. I mean, it, it was, I, th- I think I'd be doing my own craft a slight disservice if I went along with that altogether. But it certainly tickled me that um, that that's what the book looks like. But I'm, I'm certainly writing to please myself. And it, it's definitely the book that I would want to read now. So hopefully it'll be the book that other people want to read yes. now. Yes. Well, I I also really enjoyed the fact that halfway through, oh, a car chase. Oh, my God, there are some gangsters. Oh, oh God, they're all running into a theatre. It was just, I, it was fantastically diverting and entertaining. But there is that uh, central question of this person, as you say, grief stricken, unable really to move forward in any kind of meaningful way. In fact, life is getting much, much worse Would you want to go back if you can put the clock back? It's the perennial question of life, isn't it? Do we want to go back to our younger selves? Um, And I don't know whether I'm going to answer that, because in a way it's a question we can't answer, isn't it? Yes, indeed. I mean, I think we've all had that daydream. I suppose the difference between most people and writers is the writers keep keep daydreaming and they keep and they sort of follow that daydream to the logical conclusion you only really have to think about it for a few minutes before you realize it would be a horrible experience if you went back knowing everything you knew now you'd be totally isolated it would be really lonely you'd know all the stuff that other people didn't know certainly in Kate's situation where she's moved to a new place this is the first week at university she's surrounded by the 18 year old versions of her lifelong friends but none of them know who she is Luke doesn't know who she is so it's a really weird situation for her and of course you know then you start thinking okay let's have fun with this is it is it interesting to send someone with a lousy memory back in time Or is it more interesting if she's got a great memory? One of the reasons that Kate is quite a gifted person, apart from the fact that that was useful in terms of her isolation when we first meet her, that it was only Luke who actually took her seriously as a normal, flawed human, because everyone else, you know, treated her so weirdly because she has these unusual abilities. But Kate has this great memory. And so her problem isn't that she can't remember who just won the Grand National. Her problem is that she's got to be able to hide that she knows who just won the great Grand National and indeed who won the Grand National next year. So that's sort of, you know, another element to the kind of the promise of the premise, the kind of fun of having a middle-aged person suddenly surrounded by the teenage versions of her friends in 1992, which she remembers quite a lot about. But it's mainly that, you know, the personal, the emotional heft of her being surrounded by these friends again. And indeed, you know, her parents, her her father's alive again suddenly. So you, you have all the fun of, I say fun, but the emotional oomph of those reunions, um, and which are all slightly different to each other. It's funny, too, that, of course, she goes back. She is, as you say, a middle-aged woman, a kind of spy, effectively, in this situation. And she meets the, these teenagers, and she's kind of thinking, God, some of them are jerks, really. And, in fact, the person that she loves desperately, she thinks, oh, God, he's doing that thing again. Oh, God, I wish he'd stop doing that that thing. Which, of course, there is that whole element of cringe about our past. I mean, you write about this exceptionally well in in your memoir, that whole kind of thing of looking back on your past and thinking, oh, God, that was actually me. 
Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, there's a lot of me in Luke. I didn't get quite as bad as Luke. I, I never started pretending to be French, but all of his kind of poses and affectations. And I think uh, it doesn't happen to everyone, but but some people, especially again, at that first week at university, they, this is where all that, or maybe you leave school and you get a job and you're suddenly surrounded by a whole new bunch of people and you can you can reinvent yourself to some extent again you know this isn't for everyone but this is the cambridge literary festival english students at cambridge i mean there was a lot of it about people pretending to have read books that they hadn't and making up interesting things that didn't happen on their gap year and of course kate knows the truth of all this uh and you know he's talking about what's wrong with ben okri and she knows he's never read a page of ben okri and all, all of that stuff and she realizes he is not the decent wise middle-aged husband that she lost he is the annoying kid that she first met and she what he was doing didn't annoy her back then because you know he's gorgeous and he's just one of those people which you start going out with sort of despite their personality um but then they were together so long that you know that they they fell in love and he grew up as we all do but when she meets him again it's like in a classic rom-com you want the inappropriate other partner it's just that uh, in this story the inappropriate other partner is the husband. You're quite mean to him about Ben Ockrey because she, <laughs> she actually, she really quizzes him. She's sort of like, what actual bit of Ben Ockrey did you like? It's, you're just sort of dying inside at this minute because you think, oh God, how many times have I done that? But also in, he has ambitions, Luke, to be a writer himself. And I will simply have to mention the pleasure that I got from your extraordinary parody of his writing, which, well, I'll just let you say a bit about it. It's my affectionate take on what somebody very young and heavily under the influence of Martin Amis thinks an exciting paragraph looks like. (laughs) It's not me doing an impression of Martin Amis, it's me doing an impression of someone who is heavily influenced by Martin Amis. I'd like to make that clear. I don't think Martin Amis is this ridiculous, but there there are a couple of paragraphs, and yes, I did have a lot of fun writing a really, really more Amis than Amis couple of paragraphs. Yeah, and I I imagine there are a fair few of those knocking around from the 1990s, I would think. I mean, obviously, this made you put yourself back into, you couldn't have done it without putting yourself back into your own freshers week, your own young adult life. And you've written very powerfully and movingly about how different that was for you because when you went to university you went a little bit later than others because you your mother and you'd been through this beyond life-altering event and suddenly you know you're in freshers week how do you behave and I, I wonder what sort of revisiting that in a really kind of detailed way was like for you you know that I had, or you won't necessarily, not everyone will necessarily know, but I had a heart surgery a, a while ago in November because um, I had a faulty valve in my heart. And I noticed, I couldn't help noticing that I'd just spent the last year and a half writing a story about someone who, you know, Luke dies from a, a brain tumour that's been lurking there unseen for many, many years. And it turned out my valve had been broken for many, many years. And so I was impressed by, you know, the fact that my imagination perhaps was trying to tell me something. And there was another example of that in what you were talking about in that Kate has to go back to university. And of course, she's in her head, she's older than all of her friends. And actually, it was when I was talking about this only the other day that I realised 
where that probably comes from. It comes from the fact that I had to go back and sit in the, the classes of the year below at school when my mum died. I tried to retake my A-levels that autumn. It didn't happen. I had to go back to school for a year. That was my gap year. And I was like a 19-year-old man in a blazer sitting in the classes of the year below. And I have recurring dreams about that. And the, the fact that I was older than everyone when I turned up at uni, I was 20 because I was old for my year anyway. And then this enforced year and I was 20 surrounded by 18 year olds, which doesn't sound like a big deal. But actually at that age, that makes quite a big difference. And I immediately became mates with this clique of third years who were roughly my age. And so I, I think that's probably if anyone's remotely interested in the psychology, it's interesting to me where that sort of comes from, that that feeling of being older, being surrounded by younger and slightly less experienced people and also of course the fact that you know I was the only person whose mum had just died and not their fault but obviously we were weighing life experiences very differently there was a different way of sort of calibrating how serious it is when your cat's not very well so you know and that was clearly a, a really formative thing and I'm working that through in the novel and even though I didn't really know that's what I was doing. I think that's what novels are for writing them isn't it (laughs) you've got to go back and find these things out but I mean that experience must have been so complex really of of going to university because you've got this you know absolutely life-altering event and yet you are at that moment where you're supposed to feel so excited you know for the start of your life the start of your adult life independence a new character whole new new circles of, of people and capturing that kind of ambiguity and that ambivalence seems to me is a big part of this book too. Yeah, it was exciting. I mean, I, I'd gone to an enormous amount of trouble to to get there. And then it really, really didn't let me down. It was just as exciting as I wanted. It was it was complicated in, in other ways as well. There was a whole class thing going on in that, you know, I came from a family where we, we watched Only Fours and Horses and Blind Date and we drove secondhand cars and there were raised voices about money and everyone had a job but no one had a career, no one had been to university. It was a pretty straightforward working class stroke, lower middle class thing going on. And then I turn up at Cambridge and everybody's parent is a teacher. <laughs> I mean, everybody's parent is a teacher or, or they went to private school and they know that tea is at 4.30, and why are you asking what time tea is? Tea will be at 4.30, you know, and stuff like that. And I went to one of the least snotty colleges. Robinson is a very new college, but they were all the children of graduates, and so that was another sort of complicating factor. Anyway, that's got not much to do with the novel. I don't think that's in... I mean, Kate, actually, Kate has a sort of mixed background. I've given her a cab-driving dad, but uh, quite a well-to-do mum because that just seemed like the normal thing to do at the time. <laughs> but it is about, I mean, yeah, yeah, that specific sort of class aspect um, that you did you did talk about in your memoir is slightly less obvious, but it is there that sense of the dislocation that you get in lots of circumstances. We do tell ourselves stories, don't we, about the ex- life experiences that we have going to university, getting a job, falling in love, that they're all supposed to go a certain way. And of course, they never do. Yes, we're great um, storytelling creatures and we I think humans need patterns and we, in order to re- remember things or in order to sort of make sense of the world. And uh, the book generally is very suspicious of nostalgia. We're sort of having it both ways, really, because I think there is a lot of fun to be had with going back into 1992. Of course, the 90s, you think of Blair and Britpop, but obviously that was much later. The 90s generally were this kind of 
grey John Major era, which we'd all love to be living in at the moment, if only if only things were that boring again. So there's that. And of, of course, you know, the clothes and the music and Ned's Atomic Dustbin and Suede and, you know, all the, so you, you can have that fun. But on the other hand, you know, I'm suspicious of my own nostalgia towards it. I mean, was it that boring? Was it that comfortable? No, it wasn't. Not for a lot of people. And um, and also that that thing of you leave school and and your environment changes. Things are really exciting, but sometimes you know the the great privilege of youth is having absolutely no sense of perspective. And when things go wrong, things go really wrong. And if you know somebody breaks your heart, they really break it. And it's never been that terrible before, and it'll never be that terrible again. And so it's a really raw time. So I'm I'm really interested in in that part of people's lives as well as that part of um, the last century. I mean, it's not, not a coincidence, obviously, that it's set in 92. That's when I was a student, so I didn't have to do any... Um, <laughs> I didn't have to do too much research. Maybe next time I'll write a, a character who's, who's, uh, who's from the 19th century or something, and I'll, then I'll be a proper novelist. But um, at the moment, I've, I'm, I'm giving myself a break. It is so interesting when you think about how well some people in their middle age have settled into lockdown and isolation and how awful it is for young people. What do I sound like? But you know what I mean. They can't go out. They can't go to university if they were about to go to university, probably, or they don't know if they'll be able to. I mean, this period for them is such a greater proportion of their life than it is for us. It's just, it's something that it's quite hard to get our head around, isn't it, as older people? My mended heart goes out to them. It must be horrific. I mean, the idea that I'd have done a couple of weeks there and then I had to go home and live with my dad, I mean, that would be awful. I mean, I have to say, you know, at the moment, it's lucky that I really, really like the people I live with, which sounds like a banal thing to say, but it's not a given. And, you know, there have been times when, you know, with certain flatmates or with certain members of your family, uh, it, being stuck with them, as opposed to at the moment, I'm stuck with my wife and two daughters and the, and the girls are eight and ten. I think it would have been tougher when they were younger. I think it would be tougher if they were older. I feel very grateful about that. But, yeah, to be a young person now and, and stuck with your mum and dad with the best will in the world, even if they're terrific people, that would be really hard, really hard. Yeah. You mentioned that your mended heart... You mentioned the fact that you thank, and thank God it is. And you you mentioned, of course, that you were in some ways foreshadowing an experience that you were to have when you were writing the book. I mean, to have been through this, this completely, you know, you thought that you were getting a bit tired, you didn't feel perhaps quite right, but you discovered that you were so ill really by chance, didn't you? Yes. Uh, so there's um, a sitcom called Back that I do with David Mitchell, and we were just about to do the second series. And I went in for a cast medical, which is normally a very perfunctory thing. And the GP put his stethoscope on my heart and said, oh, blimey, what are we doing about the heart murmur? And I said, what heart murmur? And then a few days later, I was talking to a cardiologist after various tests. And he said, well, you're not going to have a heart attack in the next fortnight. But if this matter isn't addressed in the next two or four or six months, this heart will fail. So that got my attention. And it turned out that it was quite an urgent case for open heart surgery. And my mitral valve had prolapsed, which meant that my heart had grown and remodeled and was working 10 to the dozen to keep the show on the road. I just experienced that as being a bit tired. And I didn't like sleeping on my left side because I could hear my heart beating. But there I thought that was kind of normal. I thought that was what I just put a lot of it down to 
being 47 and in not in very good shape. But it turned out I needed um, quite urgent surgery. So I we did that in, um, I say we did that. That happened on the 1st of November last year. And then it's been a, a slow, but very sort of positive recovery ever since. But not to state the obvious here, well, I am stating the obvious, at that moment, I mean, you get pretty strong sense of your own mortality. That diagnosis oh, yeah. does not necessarily say everything is going to be well, does it? No, no, not at all. I mean, I mean, I, I hesitate to say it's a test of character because really I, I'm just not the sort of person who is going to panic at that point. I just, it, it all becomes very calm and you go, okay, okay, I need to talk to my wife, Abby, and we need to talk about the operation. We need to talk about what recovery looks like, what the risks are. And when I come out of hospital, I need to start treating myself better than before. But it, yes, I mean, certainly those first few weeks when I would go for a longer and longer walk I really really was stopping to smell the blossom in the trees and listening to the birds singing and admiring the clouds and just all that stuff that you hear about people doing when their life's got too close when they've had a a nasty brush with something it's all true and you I just remember being feeling incredibly grateful and that the sky was bluer than blue or grayer than gray and just everything the water was more watery and the tea was more tea. Everything was just more vivid um, because you just really appreciate every single moment. You can't live like that. You can't carry on being permanently enthralled, but you can, I think, much more often these days, I do just take a moment to look out the window and feel very lucky. And I mean, it has had a, a massive impact on the way that you live your life, you know, beyond the water being more watery. I mean, you, mm. your operation and treatment was successful but not without complication and you have radically changed your life since haven't you? Yeah well I came out of hospital with a a sort of newfound respect if not affection for my internal organs you know they're my guys now and the idea that I didn't I was asking so much of them that's not what I want to do anymore so I don't drink anymore I mean I'm ashamed to say that I was still smoking at 47 I'd, I'd stopped many many times and I'd started again I think I was on and off I was on an off week that week anyway, but look, you know, it was still too much and I was drinking far too much. So uh, all of that, and I wasn't doing any exercise either. So, I mean, since then, I don't drink or smoke and I I walk for uh, five miles a day and I do strength exercise twice a week as well. And uh, I was told yesterday, actually, I'm in, now in the sort of top half of people my age and and sex uh, in terms of cardiovascular fitness. So I'm I'm really kind of into being healthy now, which is a very, very, very different state of affairs. It strikes me that obviously the time that you became ill, you'd really not long finished this novel, a new phase of life, becoming a fiction writer. I know that you're you're not going to stop doing any of the other things that you do, but it is something that you want to continue doing. Again, laying up these very different kind of vectors that are going through your life must have been quite an emotional, emotionally strange time, I guess. It is very strange. You know, I think I'm probably in the middle of it now. And, um, you know, I'm sort of sceptical about if I hear myself sort of talking about it with any kind of sense of distance or, or perspective, because it's happening now. My main job at the moment seems to be writing these books and uh, and I'm grateful for the opportunity and I'm really enjoying it. We could talk about, you know, it was quite hard plotting the, the first novel 
Uh, and I think that might be easier next time. It might not be, don't know. But I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll plan it more more carefully next time. That doesn't mean I'll, I'll write a better novel, but I think I'll, I'll have less of a stressful time when I've run out of things to happen. So that's kind of my main focus. So everything everything's changed, really. But then, you know, lockdown just feels so universally weird anyway. Uh, it's difficult to know which, which weird bit of change is that and which weird bit is the rest of it sure it's interesting how much we've talked about kind of strange coincidences and and things that almost seem kind of uncanny in a way and it does strike me that you know this very strong part of come again is about dealing with horrendous bereavement and sadness and of course you're publishing it into a time when not only will that be affecting a lot of people, it's affecting a lot of people in a way that they could never have anticipated. We all expect to be bereaved. We don't expect not to be able to be with our loved ones. We don't expect any of the things that are happening now. And I wonder, I'm not really saying, do you think your book will help? But it is interesting to have this approach to grief where you will speak openly about it and think in complicated ways about it. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the book is about grief. I mean, the whole arc of the story is that is that Kate is not getting better. She's it's that thing of when you lose someone, particularly when you lose someone that you live with, that you are stuck in the past. Everywhere you turn, you can see them. Their absence is almost like a presence. You know, and the hum of the fridge and the squeak of the sofa. It's all the stuff, all the the stuff around the place that they physically interacted with, and you are stuck there, really. And that's grief. And then later, there's a process that we call mourning where you start to see that the present has something to say for itself, that you can start to integrate the new present with the lost past. And that part has meaning and value. And that's where we start to get better. But Kate is stuck in the past at the moment. And the the whole story is that she has to go and literally live in the past in order to re-engage with the present. Uh, So the whole sweep of the book is about renewal and is about mourning and about getting better. And it's a tremendously hopeful book in that sense, romantically hopeful. And she finds new life and new love. Uh, And I think it's accidentally uh, tremendously timely, really. You know, the downside of that is uh, we have to meet Kate at her lowest ebb. So, you know, my, my nightmare was always people browsing in bookshops, reading the first 10 pages and thinking, oh my God, this is too sad. But as it turns out, there are no bookshops. Uh, nobody's browsing. <laughs> they're, either, they're either buying it or not. So there we are. So maybe that's well, a blessing. Well, if, if those people <laughs> are listening to this now, I mean, I have read those first 10 pages, but also beyond. Uh, and I can say that, yes, they are very, very sad and indeed quite, uh, what should we say, gritty, but that things do change a lot. And there is indeed a car chase and people running into a theatre. And the way that I still write, the way that I, I choose to communicate is always primarily through humour. I mean, I, it's a funny book. And so there's that. And uh, as I was saying before, I can only write the book that I would want to read. And, you know, my my hunch is the books I like uh, are also liked by lots of other people. So that was how that was my system. That's my new system. That's a pretty good system. Now, Robert, I've got very excitingly, although we're not meeting right now, uh, we are very much hoping that things will be different come November and that we will be able to have the Cambridge Literary Festival and that we will indeed launch it with you on Friday the 27th of November should the situation have calmed down. Um, so shall we 
just try and see if we can pick up this conversation then, but perhaps in a room with a lot of other people in it. It's in my diary and let's have a lot of other people in it and it's all safe and super and marvellous and we can all touch each other and that will be, I'll look forward to that very much. We will. Robert, thank you so much. It's always a delight to speak to you and very best of luck in lockdown. Thank you so much, Alex. Same to you. That was Robert Webb. I do hope you enjoyed it. Cambridge Literary Festival is a small charity and obviously we've been affected by the loss of our live spring festival. If you're able to donate anything to help us keep going, please do visit our website. And even more importantly, join us next time on the podcast. See you then.